Money talks. But so do we. I'm Lauren. I'm Kat. And I'm Daniel. And And we're we're your friends friends with tax benefits. We are here to sound off about write-offs. To get wise about wealth building. And take the taboo out of tax talk. We work at TurboTax, so obviously this is what we love to talk about. But we're not here to replace your tax professional. In each episode, we'll share real talk about money with our personal opinions, advice, and jokes about all things financial. What we won't do is share any opinions on behalf of Intuit, TurboTax, their brands, or employees. Did the lawyers make you say that, Kat? So stop scrolling on Tax Talk. Call your financial professional later because it's time to talk tax, friends. Welcome, listeners, to another week of Friends with Tax Benefits. I'm here with my good friends, Lauren and Kat. Wonderful to see you both. Hey, all. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Daniel. Nice to see you. This week's topic is marriage and cohabitation. And I'm not going to share the pop culture reference just yet. I want to toss out a few stats for you here to kind of whet that appetite and get you thinking about how doomed the people in today's pop culture (laughs) reference are. So this is from a report released by the CDC. Couples that argue about finances at least once a week are 30% more likely to get divorced. The same study also found that couples with no assets at the beginning of a three-year period are 70% more likely to divorce by the end of that period than couples with $10,000 in assets. And lastly, for another uplifting stat, feeling that one's spouse spent money foolishly increased the likelihood of divorce by 45% for both men and women. So don't rush to the altar, basically. (laughs) Yes. Do you feel the sun shining on your relationship today, everyone? Yeah, so romantic. It is, it is. So the pop culture reference this week is a television show on Netflix called Love is Blind. Are you too familiar with Love is Blind? (laughs) I have seen both seasons. I'm all caught up. Yeah, me too, Lauren. I've recently binged both seasons back to back. So yes, I'm fully aware. You know that I don't Watch TV. Watched enough television to know anything about any of the television shows. But I asked my wife about it. And I was asking her how similar it was to Love Connection with Pat Woolery from the 1990s. And she said, not at all like it. (laughs) And so you have your, your, because I did watch that. um, But you have couples who fall in love. They never see each other. And then when they do see each other, they get a four weeks of trial period after which they have to decide if they're going to get married. Do I have it right well, they kind of already agreed that they are going to get married when they decide to reveal themselves, but they have like the four weeks to like, you know, get ready to get to the altar together. Yeah. They basically go on a vacation together and then live together for a couple of weeks and then show up at the altar and then chaos ensues. Uh, yeah. And you have to wait to leave them at the altar until the altar. You, you can't say this isn't this isn't working. So what strikes me about the premise of this television show is it is so romantic. You've got this great rapport. But when we when we hear those stats of how how important it is to um, be financially aligned and when people have arguments about finances, how just taxing and devastating it can be to a marriage. And hopefully they have like Love is Blind 2 where we get to follow up with them a, a year later and see how they and how they fared because it sounds like it is a train wreck. 
I was watching Love is Blind season two, and I've seen both seasons. And it was interesting to me that in the first season, one of my favorite couples, Lauren, <laughs> no relation, and Cameron talked about money. You know, he was like, I have a house, I got my wife to move in, and they had that conversation. And you fast forward and they're still together. And season two, there was a couple, Natalie and Shane. And in one episode, they were chatting about their financial futures. And Natalie was talking about how important saving was for her and investing in her 401k. And Shane basically is like, I'm just out here winging it. And you could see Natalie rolling her eyes and having such an intense reaction to what she clearly thought was a completely stupid approach to finances. And surprise, surprise, those two didn't work out. I'm excited this week to hear from you, Lauren, about what you've been thinking about in regard to money, relationships, cohabitation, and all of the fraught dynamics that those three things bring to the table. So, so fraught, Daniel. <laughs> I personally am at a place in my life where I'm very happily single, but I have lived with a partner before and have a lot of friends who are married or living with their partners. So it's a common topic of conversation in my life. And one of the things that I've learned along the way is that communication is so key in relationships. And that's especially true when making really big transitions like moving from dating to living together or getting married. And I find that money tends to be one of the most common friction points in relationships. So it's so important to have really open dialogue around that. And people often say communication is key, but don't really give you much guidance on what that means. And what I really mean by that is it's really important to be really clear with your partner and open and vulnerable around things like what your needs are, what your expectations are, what really works for you and what doesn't, and what your boundaries are. And when it comes to money, that can mean having a really open dialogue around how you split your bills. If one partner makes a lot more than the other, it's the expectation you're splitting it 50-50, or how does that work? When you are pooling money or figuring out how to divide household bills and expenses like utilities or childcare if you have children, what does that really look like in a way that works for both of you? And the more clearly you can express your needs and desires and expectations around these issues, the more you are able to then set yourself up to have your needs met and to enable your partner to really better meet those needs. Thank you, Lauren. I think that's great perspective. And that leads to the topics that I was thinking a lot about this week as it relates to finances and cohabitation and marriage. And what I really started thinking about was the notion of financial compatibility. I have these friends and they're a couple. And one of the people in the relationship, his priority was saving. And he loved to have, you know, just his savings goals met. And his partner loved fashion and decorating and stuff. And we didn't hang out often. We weren't close friends. But when we did hang out, that financial tension was palpable. It was, it would always come up and I can only imagine what it was like when they weren't around people that they didn't know that well. And really neither of their approaches is right or wrong. The right approach to finances is the one where you don't fight about it and they only fought about it. And so they just were not financially compatible. I'm wondering if you have seen that in relationships. 
I have definitely seen that in relationships. And it's kind of funny too. I'm at a point now where it's one of those things that I consider as a red flag. <laughs> when I see early on in dating someone or getting to know them that our financial approaches are very different, it to me is a sign that this relationship does not have the capacity to go to any, any serious level. The other thing that I was thinking about in regard to relationships is the debt that people bring into the relationships. So there are friends of mine um, who've gotten married and one person had tons of debt. It, it could be consumer debt. It, it could be college debt. And this struck me because someone could be thinking, well, you know, this is before they were married. And so this is not that big a deal. We can have good patterns together um, and we'll be good collective spenders together. But the problem is, and this is kind of what you alluded to, Lauren, is the idea that if you get groceries and and someone has an $800 loan bill that they have to pay every month or their credit card balance is, you know, $1,000 a month. I mean, even if you say, well, we're even, I just say, well, I can't, I can't contribute to the groceries. You need to, you need to shoulder it because I have all this debt from before I knew you. And that, Again, it sucks, but it's it's also it's just something that you should figure out ahead of time. Um, is their prior debt going to impact our relationship? And even their the debt they accrue after you're married. And this is really interesting too. What I learned is there are nine states, including the one that uh, I live in now, California, Arizona, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Washington, and Wisconsin. Even if you keep your finances completely separate, if one of the people starts to accrue lots of debt, whether it's gambling or credit cards or buys a boat, even if you don't use that boat one time or spend one dime of that money, that debt becomes your debt because you're married in those states. And I imagine even in those states where it's it's not automatically your debt, it's probably pretty pretty difficult to totally disentangle you from spending that your your partner, you know, does while you're while you're married. It's a tough one to swallow, especially if, like you said, you never got to use the boat. I don't even like boats. <laughs> and, and one other fact that our wonderful producer shared with me is that the average divorce costs 15 grand. So budget for that. Um, if it's not going well, or save yourself the expense uh, and figure that stuff out. Do what Lauren said is just communicate and look for those red flags ahead of time. Is this person buying boats behind my back? Maybe this isn't a good, this isn't a good sign. You hear it thrown around a lot that a marriage is sometimes considered like a, a business in a lot of ways. And I want to talk about that because when you get married, you get a license to get married, you make an agreement, you essentially pull your resources together towards this common goal of forming this union. And even when you're at the altar, you say something to the effect of for richer, for poorer, you know, you know, the rest. But in essence, you make a large investment and you want a good return. I want to talk about how it can feel like a business transaction. And there are some smart business practices that can be beneficial if you apply them to your marriage. I think one of the best practices that businesses do when making decisions is a cost-benefit approach. Is the cost worth the outcome? My husband and I, we enjoy eating out, even if that means getting delivery a few nights. So we make the sacrifice in our budget that each week, each of us will put aside $40 towards a date night or delivery night. That's worth the cost benefit of us having that conversation, making that sacrifice, because ultimately it brings us joy. We enjoy eating different foods and we want to prioritize that. 
things like budgeting. Um, Lauren mentioned like who pays the bills. Those should be conversations you have with your partner long before y'all make it to the altar. It's likely going to save you some of the headaches that may come along the way. Things like childcare and stuff get pricey. So it's great to know like how your partner plans to handle those moments before you get there. I think one other thing businesses do that can be really helpful in relationships too is planning, right? Businesses plan ahead. A lot of them have one, three, five-year goals for where they want to go. And I think when you're in a relationship, it can be really helpful to think about how you want to build together and how you want to plan for your future. And that can really also include how you're planning financially for the things you want to do in the future, things you want to have, and the life you want to lead together. Be it retirement, be it a vacation, be it your kid's college, all of those long-term plans. Yeah, that's an awesome point, Lauren. Yeah, like really plan. You don't have to do it all in the first year. You don't have to get married, buy a new car, buy a new house. Your retirement, I know that probably at the beginning of your marriage, it seems like such a far out thing. But if you do have kids and they go on and start their own family at one point or the other, even if you don't have kids, it, it will be you and your spouse till the end. And you want to make sure that you both are saving for retirement so that maybe you don't have to work in your old age if you don't want to and you just want to enjoy the one another, right? On the fruits of your previous labor and you're ready for enjoying your retirement. And then lastly, just don't forget your bottom line. Like your bottom line, you wouldn't forget it in your business is ultimately to be successful, right? You want a successful marriage so that you guys can both be happy with the choices that you're making together individually and thus together. Thank you, Kat. I appreciate that. Um, may we all have long and happy singlehoods, relationships, whatever it is we choose uh, using some of these lessons today. Let's move on to the Q and A. Marriage, cohabitation, taxes, finances, and how they relate to questions that you are the only one equipped to answer today, Kat. So are you ready for the questions? Yes, sure. Let's see what we've got this week. All right, let's do it. My partner and I have been living together for three years, and he lost his job last year. I've been covering the bills for both of us, and he's been receiving unemployment checks while job hunting. Can I claim him as a dependent? So the unemployment checks he has been receiving is considered income, and your partner will receive a 1099G at the end of the year, likely. If his total income was more than $4,300, you would not be able to claim him as a dependent, even though you may satisfy the support test. But if he's been receiving it throughout the year, it's likely that it has pushed him over the income limits to be considered her dependent. All right. Rules are rules. Ready for the next one, Kat? Yes. My husband and I keep our finances pretty separate. What's the benefit of filing together? Are we missing out on anything? So generally speaking, married filing jointly presents the best tax benefits to a couple. Now, there are some cases where folks might see it in their benefit to do married filing separately, but you're unable to benefit from several tax provisions if you do married filing separate. Like you can't claim earned income tax credit or premium tax credit or even claim your student loan deduction if you were paying student loans. Now, joint filers typically receive a higher income threshold for certain tax breaks, such as contributing to an IRA. 
if you're married and filing separately, you essentially face a higher tax rate and thus are paying more in taxes. Filing separately may be in your benefit if you, let's say, had a large out-of-pocket medical expense. It might be easier for you to reach the 7.5% threshold of your adjusted gross income if it was just your income for those medical deductions. So it really depends on each person's financial situation, but typically speaking, those married filing jointly present the best tax benefits for the couple. I'm wondering if there isn't a way in tax prep software to make a selection that says, show me my outcome for married filing separately and married filing jointly to just really see Is it better for me? Because that would make me sleep better at night. Yeah. And I think that that's a common situation that married couples find themselves in, especially maybe the first year that they are married and trying to figure out their tax situation. They might not know, should they file jointly or should they file separately? Generally, a tax expert or a software could help you essentially prepare a tax return in both scenarios. That's a great that's a great point about your first year of marriage too because you can say, "Oh, this is clearly better as filing jointly. It was this way last year. I'll just continue doing it." Um so great, that helps. Last question, Kat. If I'm married filing jointly for the first time, should I expect a larger refund than when I filed as a single person? Just because you're married filing jointly for the first time doesn't necessarily mean that you will get a larger refund or maybe even get a refund at all. It really depends on how much federal tax withholding you and your spouse both had withheld throughout the year and how much income you've earned from all of your both combined sources. So, Kat, I thought if I got married to somebody who was fabulously wealthy, I could uh, go from getting a refund to owing quite a bit. It, it really depends. Maybe that person had really good tax planning throughout the year and had a lot of withholding, but you can't really know until you cross that bridge. Fair enough. Well, that does it today for our Q's and A's. And thank you for A-ing those Q's. Kat, as always, very helpful. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friends with Tax Benefits. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bye, Kat. Bye, Lauren. Bye, Daniel. Bye, Kat. See y'all next time. Bye, Daniel. Bye, Lauren. Friends with Tax Benefits is an Intuit TurboTax podcast produced by Frequency Media. We're your hosts, Daniel Thrall, Katharina Rickmans, and Lauren Thomas. From Intuit TurboTax, Jane Lahani is our executive producer, and Tony Melinda is our video producer. From Frequency Media, Jordan Rizieri is our producer, Catherine Devine is our associate producer, and Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound engineer. Concept development by Jessica Olivier, Jill Pashesnik, and Isabel Moncloa Daly. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are found. 